Are we better off trying to forget painful and potentially divisive memories? Do we get along better when we avoid opening old wounds? Why is it often so difficult to work through the past? And what are the potential benefits of doing so? These are the questions we explore in Realms of Memory. I'm your host, Rick Dadarian. In today's episode, we turn to the memory of the slave trade in Britain. Britain not only ruled the waves as the world's first superpower in the 18th century, it also dominated the highly lucrative slave trade. British ships carried more Africans across the Atlantic in the 18th century than any other country, and this century alone accounted for nearly half of all the slaves transported during the entire 400-year history of the Atlantic slave trade. Of all the British slave trading ports, Liverpool, measured by the sheer volume of the human cargo it transported, was in a category all by itself. Despite determined efforts to forget, the memory of the slave trade has persisted in Liverpool. To delve into this story, I'm very pleased to welcome Jessica Moody, lecturer in public history at the University of Bristol, to discuss her recent book, The Persistence of Memory, Remembering Slavery in Liverpool, Slaving Capital of the World. Jessica, thank you for joining this episode of Realms of Memory. Thank you, Richard. It's great to be here. So to start with, I'm hoping you could just explain the significance of the slave trade uh, in Liverpool. Just just how important was it to the, to the growth and development of the city? Mm. So Liverpool was the largest slave trading port city in Europe. Um, far outstripping other port cities like Nantes in France or uh, Bristol or London in Britain. Uh, And Liverpool transported more enslaved Africans uh, than the rest of the British port cities put together. Uh, And this this was huge uh, and had a a huge impact on the city in, in various ways. And just to give you a sense of this, by the at the beginning of the 18th century, when Liverpool hadn't properly entered into the transatlantic slave trade, uh, it was a very small city, more described by some historians as, as more like a, a fishing port. Did some important trade with Ireland, but was otherwise um, quite small. And it was the transatlantic trade, including the trade in enslaved African people, that then raised Liverpool up um, to huge influx in population. So you had people um, immigrating into Liverpool from Scotland, Wales uh, and around to come and work, uh, and then led to Liverpool becoming second city of empire uh, into the 19th century. Uh, And and what you had here, the reason it was so important was because, like any trade, it had knock-on impact. So it wasn't just um, the merchants who were making money out of this. It was people who were fitting out the ships. It was the sailors. It was people supplying groceries and food and consumables for the long Atlantic journeys. And there was one historian in Liverpool writing in the 18th century that said of Liverpool's slave trade, he who cannot send a bale will send a bandbox. And so it sort of, which spoke to this idea of lots of people being involved. Um, and Jane Longmore has, uh, another Liverpool historian, has estimated that one in eight people were dependent on the trade. So one in eight people and their families were dependent on Liverpool slave trade by the end of the 18th century. It was without question 
the wealth of the slave trade that rocketed Liverpool from a small fishing village to a mighty seaport within the span of a few decades. Not surprisingly, the abolitionist movement that gained steam in the late 18th century was met with fear and resentment. But when the end of the slave trade finally came and the city was able to survive the economic shock, this extraordinary boom rooted in a horrific commerce was quickly relegated to an inconsequential chapter in the city's past. There was a real worry that the abolition of the slave trade would be the ruin of the city. This idea that um, the Liverpool would not survive the abolition of the slave trade, um, that that you know the docks would be growing grass in them, and and you know everyone would be starving, sailors would lose all their jobs, and this was also led to a lot of tensions between um, sailors and dock workers and the uh, abolitionists movement who uh, towards Britain. So you had people like Thomas Clarkson. Uh, who visited Liverpool and um, you know the story goes that sailors tried to throw him in the River Mersey because they weren't happy to see him um, and so people were, were really worried about this and what's interesting is that when when the abolition of the slave trade isn't the complete downfall of the city um, historical actors at the time then use that as a kind of argument to say oh well it wasn't that wasn't that important and that's an argument that then gets repeated by historians and commentators in public discourse uh, for you know a hundred plus years afterwards uh, the sense that well Liverpool survived um, or overcame abolition and that's also a sense of how Liverpool overcomes adversity so it sort of intertwines with these other civic identity narratives um, and this means maybe it wasn't that important. So you have these sort of instances of mechanisms and rhetorics that people deploy um, to try and downplay how important the slave trade was to Liverpool once it became unpalatable to British national identity narratives. Abolition became the centerpiece of a new national identity narrative in Britain. It was an uplifting narrative that justified renewed imperial ambitions in the 19th century and made it easier to forget the less savory chapter of the recent past. I think, it, yes, it would be accurate to say that what Britain has remembered is not slavery, but abolition. Um, and, you know, it's uh, the country achieved that through the celebration of abolition heroes, William Wilberforce, Thomas Clarkson, um, Buck, uh, Fowl Buxton and other figures, sometimes Equiano, but not so much always. Um, and sort of the commemoration of particular anniversaries. So in particular, the centenary of the Emancipation Act. So in 1933 and 1934, and then of course the, the sort of uh, the abolition acts as well and that's the national picture so the national picture is that, that britain will will talk far more in public discourse and in public memory about its own history of abolition celebrating you know the idea that it abolished its own slave trade without really mentioning the previous 400 years of involvement because it was also useful for a reframing of national identity across the 19th century uh, when there was you know, across Europe, the, the massive imperial and imperialism and colonialism. It was a way of justifying expansion into Africa to try and abolish the East African slave trade and Muslim and Arab trades. Um, and so it became a usable past. It became something that was useful um, to frame in that way. Like most of her peers, 
Jessica had little exposure to the history of slavery through the English school system. Even the history of the British Empire was largely absent from her classes. It wasn't until she moved to Liverpool for her university studies that she became aware of this past. My position on this, I think, is probably quite common for a lot of people, certainly of my kind of generation. I'm a, I'm a millennial, <laughs> so I, mm. I'm in my mid-30s. And, um, and this speaks to the problematic nature or relationship that um, the British national curriculum has with histories of empire. So I didn't learn about the transatlantic slave trade, transatlantic slavery, or anything about the British empire in school. So his, history is only compulsory in the British education system up to, um, I guess, kind of age 13, 14. Um, but I didn't, I didn't, I actually didn't take history in school. It didn't interest me. <laughs> so, um, so I didn't learn, I, and I wouldn't have learned about this anyway. And I grew up in a landlocked post-industrial town in the southeast of England, a town called Luton. Um, and so there was no kind of direct connection to histories of um, sort of maritime trade, um, whereas the places where people might learn about this history before that, when it wasn't an official part of the national curriculum, would be places like Bristol and Liverpool, where sometimes if you had a good teacher, <laughs> they'd put it on the on the sort of local studies curriculum. So I, I knew nothing about this. And I, I think I thought that slavery was something that happened in America, uh, in the United States, or, or something that was to do with Africa. I did not know, I did not understand how central Europe was and that that was and that Britain had played such a huge part. So I was surprised when I moved to Liverpool. I moved to Liverpool um, in 2003 for university uh, and I went on one of these red uh, red buses, open top buses that toured the city. I took my grandparents um, and it was there that I learned about Liverpool's history of slavery. There was this uh, recorded voiceover and we passed the Albert docks and and the voiceover sort of said uh, you know the docks in Liverpool traded with the whole world all of these um, these artifacts these these items um, including slaves Liverpool was number one for slavery and I just thought it was a very strange way of phrasing such a huge involvement with such a difficult history and I think it was from there that I then sort of learnt about it and then looked more into it and um, and I think Liverpool for a long time was you know one of the few places Bristol as well where you could go and learn something about Britain and slavery because there had been a permanent museological exhibition since 1994 and then later you know, the, the International Slavery Museum um, so it was it was a surprise I think to learn about this and it was really only being there, living in Liverpool, that I sort of first came into contact with that history and then kind of followed that up through, um, through further study. The history of slavery may have been left out of the national curriculum and national museums, but the memory persisted in places like Liverpool. It persisted in the form of public discourse or stories that were told and narratives that were crafted about the city's past. So in researching the book, I, I looked at, um, I tried to look at as wide a range of um, 
sort of public sources as possible. So this included written histories of the cities, but also guidebooks. So so from the beginning of the 19th century onwards, you get these these lovely, beautiful little guidebooks that are designed to be carried uh, by tourists to the to the city. But I think in a part maybe they're also aimed at citizens as well. And so you get a sense of, you know, well, what's the outward projection of who Liverpool wants to be seen as at this time? So you can map those, uh, as well as a number of other kind of um, leaflets, newsletters uh, and printed culture across the 19th and 20th centuries. And and what I found was that um, there are some really regularly repeated narrative structures that we can find. I guess what James Watch would call schematic narratives of memory. So these kind of tropes and narratives that get repeated. Um, one of the ones that repeats quite a lot is um, something that um, I, I, you could refer to and I did refer to as, as scouse, scouse boasting. Um, so people from Liverpool are known as scousers. Uh, and this is the narrative that um, that comes up in, in in history books, but but in guidebooks as well. This idea that Liverpool won, Liverpool won the slave trade. So this goes back to the red bus audio tour that I took with my grandparents, saying that Liverpool was number one for slavery. But you have historians in the in the 19th century through to the 21st saying that Liverpool beat Bristol and London out of the slave trade. So it you know it won at the slave trade and this idea that it that it, it sort of succeeded at something that was at the time um, generally but not entirely seen as something that was good for Britain that Britain was was good at as well as sort of engaging in this transatlantic commerce but it's also something that becomes kind of ridiculed in their, these really interesting satirical texts like in uh, Porcupine in 1863, uh, where the author's kind of um, mocking the, this idea that Liverpool has this sense that it, it won at the slave trade. Um, and then I think one of the more interesting historical narratives that, that repeats across different media is this idea of dissonance. and it becomes distilled down into these particular phrases. So you get the idea that by the early 20th century, uh, slavery and the slave trade is seen as both the glory and the shame of Liverpool. So uh, it's both seen as something that was glorious, that was something to take pride in, and is now uh, seen as, as shameful, as morally corrupt as something that is anti what uh, British national identity is, because by this point, um, Britain has a uh, an anti-slavery empire, you know, and that becomes part of the raison d'etre for, for pushing further into Africa, for, you know, taking control of of different peoples for for apparently their own their own good. In addition to whether the story of the slave trade should be remembered as a source of pride or shame, the actual presence of slaves on Liverpool soil was another enduring subject of debate. Even if if no enslaved African person ever stepped foot on Liverpool soil, the city's merchants were still intimately involved in masterminding the whole trade. It still happens. But this idea of did actual people live uh, here, where they bought and sold in Liverpool, that's something that becomes a real focus of debate. And I guess it's because it, it brings it home in a way that talking about ships and the triangular trade and goods 
uh, doesn't really, because those are all in, sort of inanimate things. Whereas people, that's the human aspect, you know, that's the real trauma of this history. And yet it's so, so little seen, you know, and I think that's true around the Atlantic world, you know, even, you know, even in America, um, we, you've had recent uh, efforts to try and rebuild some slave cabins that there were on uh, the big plantation houses, um, but they were still destroyed. <laughs> you know, some mm. some things remain, but very little of the infrastructure of of slavery remains. You know, the ships were all reused for other things. So, in terms of the connections to the human story of slavery, I think that's where this real tension comes in. Because then, if there are human people being bought and sold, or or even just kind of owned or brought back to Liverpool, then that's such a more direct connection to the humanity and, as people often say, the inhumanity of the history of slavery. What makes it impossible to suppress the memory of the slave trade in Liverpool is the presence of the city's black community. Liverpool has Britain's oldest black population with roots that stretch back at least 200 years. Liverpool-born Blacks, as members of this community have named themselves, have a distinct identity shaped by a long history of racially motivated violence and discriminatory policies. It was the mobilization of this community, both as memory actors and through clashes with city authorities, that helped foster a greater degree of awareness and public recognition of the history of the slave trade in Liverpool. Liverpool has the longest, continuous, settled black presence in Britain. And the black community in Liverpool is a, is a mixed community, as all migrant communities are, uh, but they are predominantly more from a West African origin than a Caribbean origin. So a lot of the sort of African-Caribbean black in migration to Britain after the Second World War was people coming from the Caribbean, from former British uh, colonies on ships like the Empire Windrush. And that's a story I think that most people know. That's a sort of quite, that's quite a prominent figure of, uh, feature of public memory of uh, immigration and race in Britain is, is knowing that post-1948 story. However, Liverpool has black families um, of, of African and Caribbean descent who can trace their family trees back to the 18th century. And so you've got um, this, this long and, and continuous settled presence of a community, some of whom may have been brought here um, directly through the transatlantic slave trade, though more likely around the sort of external periphery apparatus of, of the workings of the trade. So West African elites sent their children to school in Liverpool to learn about the trade. Um, and then into the 19th century, you get a lot of um, um, men in particular working on the steamship lines um, from West Africa to Liverpool um, and things like that. So you've got this long historical black presence and one that is that is English, you know, that have that have um, families that marry, that settle um, in the city uh, and, and have that longevity. And for a long time, they were treated terribly. You know, there was a lot of um, institutionalized systemic racism through employment, education, housing, you name it. 
and um, you know at the hands of the, the sort of the city authorities um, and and universities as well uh, and the museums, so cultural organisations too, and so you you sort of have this um, this population who are a legacy of Liverpool's history of transatlantic slavery slavery and as I say that's not just directly that's also through the later trading relationships that that the slave trade um, enabled Liverpool to have with West Africa and you you have this sort of this history that isn't that when it is being talked about it's being talked about in quite celebratory ways you know is that that Liverpool was number one with slavery and Liverpool sort of beat Bristol and London out of the slave trade. And there's this huge dissonance in terms of the stories that aren't being told, of course, about in relation to, to people of African descent. But what's also really important is that uh, people of African descent in the city um, are also active agents in memory work as well. And this particularly comes through in relation to alternative and further forms of education. So you have people like Eric Scott Lynch, who um, gives uh, walking tours, slavery walking tours of the city and had done since the 1970s, initially just to sort of people he knew, but then kind of branching out and, and talking about the connections between some of Liverpool's buildings uh, and the history of empire and slavery. And then you have alternative organizations and institutions for um, education aimed directly at black and ethnic minority people such as the Charles Wooten uh, College uh, which ran a black studies course and history workshops and, and things like that and then um, I, and I think one of the m most poignant ways that the black community kind of led led the way in resisting um, these problematic narratives was through the kinds of resistance that we see in the 1980s um, and so the there were there were riots in it, inner city areas of a number of British cities um, Brixton Bristol in, in 1980 and the riots in Toxteth or which were called the riots in Toxteth at the time um, in 1981 were the largest and it was the only um, it's the rec only recorded use of CS gas, uh, and, a, and a disabled man was killed during uh, those riots by, by police. Um, and what we see after that is a sort of um, a reaction from city authorities to sort of try and 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 make some make some moves in the right direction. So you have reports that are written. Um, a report called Loosen the Shackles, which is quite ominously titled in ways that connect it metaphorically to Liverpool and slavery. Um, and it's also after that that you then get the museums starting to introduce um, different displays, looking at their displays that were directly criticised in this report as well. Beyond its Black community, what makes Liverpool unique is its dual anniversaries. The anniversary of the city's founding coincides with the anniversary of the abolition of the slave trade. Much like the persistence of narratives of pride and shame that define the city's memory of the slave trade, efforts to reconcile these dual anniversaries have long been a source of tension in Liverpool. So Liverpool is quite an interesting place to study for coinciding anniversaries. And I, you know, I don't think there is much written about this, actually, the sort of overlapping of commemorative years. Um, but Liverpool takes as its birthday, the sort of founding date, um, 
of 1207, which is the date when it was granted letters patent by King John, and that designated um, the, the place a, a free borough. Uh, and then 1807 uh, was the abolition of the British Slave Trade Act, which outlawed a trade that Liverpool had been highly involved with and dependent on. And what happens is that it, it, in 1907, when Liverpool starts celebrating its own birthday in grand civic ways, and this is a time when... Um, if anyone, if you think of the, the waterfront of the city, the large buildings, the liver building, um, the customs house, the, the sort of the, the big, um, the three graces as they're known, are, are going up. So it's a time of rapid expansion, big kind of, um, you know, end of the Victorian period, big building in Liverpool, time of real civic pride. Uh, and the city authorities instigate this public celebration, this public birthday party to celebrate Liverpool's birthday as a way of kind of fostering a sense of civic pride, but also as a way of kind of um, challenging their critics. So there were articles written in the Times, and you know, this plays out now. <laughs> I think there's always a tension between regional and, and, and national press and, and identities, but that the Times had said that, that Liverpool's people were ignorant of its history. It was a commercial town. It wasn't a place of culture or arts. And so there was a sense of needing to instill a sense of civic pride, but also show the rest of the country that Liverpool had a history. Um, and in the sort of records of the organisation of, of this event in 1907, the civic authorities are saying things like, you know, we have a history that's just as good as Warwick's. You know, Warwick is this old city that also had these pageantry type celebrations and, and Liverpool's authorities want to um, celebrate that and show that they have a long history as well. And as part of that in 1907, they have this long, um, this huge historical pageant, which involves a parade of these horse-drawn cars. And each cart has a different historical theme or event or person that they're celebrating. And because they're placing it in, in, in a progression, in a procession, um, they can't help but sort of have to tell a narrative history of the, of the city. And they can't leave out the slave trade. You know, it'd be too much of a massive omission. So, so they end up having to have, a, they have a car that celebrates the slave trade in this procession that has kind of allegorical figures. Um, there's a there's a female figure in the middle epitomizing wealth <laughs> and there's people playing, um, you know, slave traders um, like Hugh Crow. And then you have um, Afri actual African people, black African people in this procession taking on the parts of slaves. And there are chains all around this cart. And so it's this interesting kind of example of the sort of awkward juxtaposition of a, a difficult and horrific history in a pantomime, essentially, a sort of um, a procession that's celebratory. Um, and also the sort of weird sort of awkward sense of, um, of, 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 the, of the kind of history um, being downplayed in a way, kind of sanitized in a sense. So, so it's sort of has to ma match the tone of the rest of the procession uh, and it and it reflects this this sort of 
imperial paternalism of the time, because the cart that follows directly afterwards is about charity, <laughs> philanthropy. So you have the slave trade car, then you have the philanthropy car, and it's almost like this is an atonement. This is sort of one makes up for the other. And it's sort of celebrating these philanthropic figures of Liverpool who made their money in slavery as well. So you have that in 1907. Uh, and the, the really useful thing from a historical point of view is that that then in 1957, when it's Liverpool's 750th birthday, they do this again. They don't have the big procession because it's it's post-war and no one has any money, but they have they have exhibitions and they have leaflets that are produced and, and it's really interesting to kind of analyse how that's changing there and they have sort of invited dignitaries and um, Ghana was made independent in 1957 so they have um, they have dignitaries from Ghana um, who get these written histories of, of Liverpool as gifts uh, and in these written histories you know that the author at the time George Chandler was uh, severely downplayed Liverpool's role in the slave trade you know it's only sort of a page on it in the end um, and then in 2007 it's 800 years since that charter so it's Liverpool's 800th birthday um, it's the year before Liverpool is given uh, the capital of culture title from the from the from Europe and it is the bicentenary of the abolition of the British slave trade and that's a time when events were taking place up and down the country. There was loads of things going on, not just in the port cities, uh, landlocked locations, archives, community centres, theatres and museums, lots of things going on. So it wasn't just sort of Liverpool and Bristol <laughs> kind of talking about these things. Um, but again, that kind of clashes with some people, a smaller number of people who still want to celebrate Liverpool's birthday. But what happens in that year uh, is that compared to 1907 and 1957, slavery is talked about the least in Liverpool's birthday ce celebrations in 2007, perhaps because it's been compartmentalised into the bicentenary um, events as well. So I, I think that, you know, this is a really interesting phenomena for people who are interested in memory, who study memory, to think about not just the anniversary in isolation, but what else it coincides with as well, because Liverpool can't be the only example of this happening. I mean, it's it's really interesting. It's really telling the way that this plays out here. But I think this is something that we could interrogate further in other contexts as well. As the city celebrates its dual anniversaries, we also see the evolution of the memory of one of its leading citizens, William Roscoe. So William Roscoe, I think he's an interesting barometer of what's going on in public memory of slavery in Liverpool at different points in time, because he he, he becomes, eventually, he becomes a hero of the city and is celebrated for lots of different reasons. Um, almost like he's a kind of Liverpool renaissance, you know, so when Liverpool was being criticised for not being a place of culture, they were, you know, that. William Roscoe was held up to say, oh, well, he was a poet and he and he loved Italy and he owned these books and these paintings. Um, but when he died in the 1830s, that was not the case. Uh, well, he was he was celebrated for cultural reasons and, and for being a figure um, of, you know, a, a patron of the arts in the city. But celebrating him for having been 
uh, having voted in favour of abolition and for his anti-slavery activities was was not something that was agreed upon. And there's um, records of, of debates about how to properly memorialise William Roscoe when when he dies. That have some people, his you know his friends and, and colleagues who want to remember his anti-slavery activities and, and actions, and that's just that just does not go down very well <laughs> at all. And, and the civic authorities in Liverpool just don't want that as part of the sort of public um, commemoration of this figure. So they don't want anything that, that references African people or chains or anything like that in any tangible memorial. Um, until much later, actually. I think it is the 20th century where he then is almost reimagined. And I think, you know, he is someone, and this happens a lot, I think, with civic heroes. So these figures in relation to place and identity that are used, reused, invented, reinvented over time for what they can celebrate in that particular given moment, you know, what people feel they need in that given moment. Um, So in the 20th century, um, and particularly, you know, around and just after the the time when the country nationally was celebrating 1933 and 1934 coming up to the, you know, it was a big build-up to that as well. So around all of the organising commemoration of emancipation, then he sort of starts getting um, reinvented, I guess, as an anti-slavery hero. Uh, And then what what you find is that he's then often used in debates as a sort of counter-argument to Liverpool's intense involvement in slavery and the slave trade to say, but we had William Roscoe, and William Roscoe voted to, to abolish this trade. Museums that addressed the history of the slave trade in Britain traditionally did so by celebrating the biographies of the leading abolitionists. The William Wilberforce House in Hull, the Cowper and Newton Museum in Buckinghamshire, and the Wisbeck Museum in Cambridgeshire tell the story of the architects of the anti-slavery movement. It wasn't until the 1990s that we see the creation of the first public institutions devoted to the history of the transatlantic slave trade. The establishment of the Transatlantic Slavery Gallery in Liverpool in 1994, followed by the International Slavery Museum in 2007, mark a shift in national public memory from abolition to slavery. The development of these museums, however, was fraught with challenges and difficulties, in particular, questions about who should be involved in the museum planning process and whose story should be told had the potential to deepen racial divisions and to reinforce an older abolitionist national identity. Liverpool, more than anywhere else in Britain, has had more successful and permanent forms of commemoration. So, you know, the International Slavery Museum is a permanent museum. The, the gallery that was installed in 1994 in the basement of the Merseyside Maritime Museum was also permanent. And so there's a sort of sense that more has happened in, in Liverpool than anywhere else. And that that is down to the efforts of individual people, uh, activists, and also the sort of the internal politics of the city in terms of um, so the International Slavery Museum is part of National Museums Liverpool, where, where I used to work, and that is a national museums organisation rather than a local authority funded uh, council run organisation. So they have a slightly more capacity to, to do new things like build new museums. Um, 
Yes, it's it's rarely as simple as something just being a positive step forward. And I and I think it is, you know, when we're studying public memory, I, I do advocate for viewing these things holistically. So the museums aren't the sort of pinnacle, well, we fixed it now kind of solution. I don't think that that's necessarily even the thing that we should be aiming for. I think they're part of the conversation and I think they're an important part of the conversation, um, but I don't think we should ever view it as, well, that's it, we've fixed forgetting or we've fixed Liverpool's public memory of slavery by having a museum, not least of all because they are contested spaces as well. Um, and it's, I think, again, this makes historical sense as well. You, you mentioned that Liverpool-born black people in particular um, had issues around the development of both of these museums. Um, initially in the early 90s, you know, there was a sense of who was being involved in the conversation, who was being shut out, that led to some difficult but productive conversations with museum staff and historians, some of whom hadn't tackled this subject before at all. You know, this wasn't something that British museums really had a handle on. Um, there was, you know, the, there was Wilberforce House in Hull, but that was mainly a museum about Wilberforce. Um, and so there was a sense that this was kind of new ground. Uh, and there were a number of quite intense exchanges about things like language, you know, how, how you were referring to, to people who were enslaved, not using the term slaves, trying to sort of think about having the representation of Africa before slavery. All of these were things that came out of that that conversation. So those things are really important and they've had long legacies in terms of how we talk about and represent this history now and how other museums have gone on to do that. But the museums are still, you know, part of the overall structure, authoritative structure of cities that have historically misrepresented this history, misrepresented African history and African people in ways that a lot of people um, of African descent have taken issue with. Um, museums are also colonial institutions, you know, particularly in Europe, where a lot of the collections have been built up from imperial wars, um, through pillaging, through taking artefacts from um, the expansive empire. And so, you know, why would you trust this organisation to tell this history in a particular way, particularly when it's so intimately connected to the powers in the city, the overall power in the city? So, you know, this, this as ever comes down to power, who has it, whose voices are heard within that process. And the International Slavery Museum, I think it's really interesting because I think it does have to be viewed in the context of the development of museums in Liverpool. I know that that early museum, the Transatlantic Slavery, Slavery Gallery, which opened in 1994, was in part funded by a philanthropic grant by um, Peter Moores of um, the Moores family who, who owned Littlewoods at the time. Um, and so there was sort of in part a sort of philanthropic grant to that. And then the later museum was much more sort of traditionally funded from um, Heritage Lottery Fund, uh, DCMS, state, state funding in Britain, as well as some other um, trusts and foundations. But the development of the gallery, I think, you know, they, they learned some lessons from the first time around in terms of consultation, who was involved and in getting that process started early. Um, but this is a dissonant history. This is a difficult past. And I think one of the things that continues to make it difficult is this question of legacy. 
both in terms of there are legacies of this history which persist. Um, so the way that people of African descent have been treated, are treated, are seen um, as a direct consequence of those sort of 18th, 19th century European uh, racism, really, and how, how that then infiltrated through trade and how people were, were treated. But then also in terms of how you're connecting that history and the present day. So one of the, the sort of key points of, of tension is how or whether you should talk about tra the transatlantic trade in enslaved African people in the same space that you're talking about things that come under the umbrella of contemporary slavery, quote unquote. So things that are, you know, things like human trafficking, sex trafficking, wage slavery, bonded labor, and the kinds of things that Charities like Anti-Slavery International, who, who also have kind of historic roots through British abolitionism, um, are tackling. And I think so, you know, some people, particularly some people of African descent in the city, don't think that those things are the same. That, you know, saying things like slavery is still going on, you don't mean that the triangular trade across the Atlantic, you don't mean that the Middle Passage is still there. You don't mean that enslaved African people are still taken in chattel slavery across to the Americas. What you mean is that something else that is that you perceive as is, is similar in some ways is happening usually somewhere else. And so I think what people are concerned by is that in having that narrative there, you're taking attention away from what are seen as the direct legacies of transatlantic enslavement, namely anti-black racism. So you're not talking about that as much as you are talking about, you know, sweatshops in Indonesia. And that's seen as, um, in some cases, maybe a deflection, maybe a sort of... Um, expression of neo-abolitionism that that is a, an idea that you know white saviors again are coming into this and that's where the attention is turning rather than thinking through the really complicated uh, and important and pressing legacies of transatlantic enslavement in 1999 liverpool became the first city in england to issue an official apology for its role in the slave trade it was part of a global wave of apologies which some historians have argued were part of an international memory boom triggered by the 50th anniversary of the end of World War II and the commemoration of the Holocaust. Jessica argues that apologies need to be understood as speech acts. They are performed by particular actors targeting specific audiences with carefully selected words and clearly defined objectives. It was, in many respects, the muddled nature of the apology issued by Liverpool's city council that caused it to fall flat. One of the things that's really interesting about historical apologies or collective apologies is that they work as speech acts. Uh, and there's a lot of really interesting work about historical apologies uh, and where they've been issued and where they haven't and how they've how they've taken place. Um, but as a speech act, you, you, you need to know who the apology is coming from, who it is going to, and what the actual content of that apology is. And I think those three things are really interesting in Liverpool. And 
There was some some criticism around at the time that the apology was kind of rushed through. The timing was quite ominous. It was um, just coming up to the millennium, so it was 1999 in this sort of the midst of all this other um, activity that had been going on with you know, Slavery Remembrance Day and um, uh, and around the country, there were different kind of commemorative things going on. Uh, and there was a sense that it was being rushed through before the millennium and that maybe this was also to do with the sort of political um, uh, careers of, of those involved as well. Um, but I think that, that sort of question of who it's coming from is first of all quite interesting because it seemed to the way it was performed and you know it was read in Liverpool Town Hall which is again a slightly problematic stage to hold the apology in because Liverpool Town Hall is one of Liverpool's only surviving 18th century buildings in that district and it has carvings of of African people on the frieze going around the building you know celebrating what Liverpool made its money in so maybe not maybe not the best place but it is the seat of the the city council and I guess that was why they chose to have it there Uh, and so the way that it was performed seemed like it was maybe coming from the council as the sort of leading authoritative body in the city but the language read as a as a collective we that was more about the whole city which again gets a bit complicated because well in that city you've got um, people of African descent and people of, you know, Anglo-European Europe, descent and, and a whole host of other people as well. So the collective we in that sense is, is quite difficult. The who it's for as well, it seemed like in the text it was it was quite directly um, addressed to um, people of African descent in the city, particularly Liverpool-born black people who had suffered so much through the history of slavery. But that wasn't entirely clear and even then for an apology to be for someone don't they have to accept it and I don't think there was a sense that this was something that was accepted a lot of people of African descent were concerned by how it had taken place you know little consultation little sense of what happened next Um, and you know is it an apology just on its own enough or should there be actions that go with it? And I think a lot of people didn't see any actions that, that came of it, came out of it. And then the content of the apology text itself is really is uh, really fascinating. And I've printed it in full in the book because I do think it's worth um, looking at all of it. Um, but what's also interested is what's what was not said in that apology and in the council records you know there is some debate about what to include in the language um, of the apology and one of the things they was raised was suggested to put in there was the role of white english abolitionists to sort of give them recognition and quite quite appropriately i think that they felt that that would not really be an apology (laughs) if you had sort of but remember, we abolished this thing. That that, that doesn't really sound like a, a true apology in that sense. It's not, it doesn't have that kind of truth to it. Um, so it was it was a really interesting kind of performative moment, and I think it's interesting that that Britain nationally is so adverse to this idea of historical apologies. Um, and I think for some people, it was an important. Thing that happened but for others the lack of action the lack of reparative justice measures meant that it was 
words without deeds, as one of my interviewees said. Liverpool may be devoid of monuments and memorials to its dark past, but the cityscape itself is charged with sites that evoke stories, legends, and myths about the presence of enslaved Africans. These are the unofficial sites of memory that haunt the cityscape. Debates surrounding these sites form layers of memory that make them resonate across time. So whilst I've said that, you know, Liverpool is unique in Britain for having more permanent forms of commemoration than anywhere else, what it lacks is a memorial dedicated to enslaved African people. There are memorials to abolitionists. There's a shrine um, to remember the ancestors in the museum, but there is not um, the kinds of memorials that you see elsewhere around the Atlantic world that are dedicated to remembering uh, the victims of this history. But what you do have in Liverpool is a really interesting memory scape. So you have places around the city that accumulate stories that connect Liverpool and transatlantic slavery. And the most persistent of those concern enslaved African people themselves. And I think it's really poignant that people keep coming back to stories and, you know, leaving aside for a moment whether they're true or not I think what's important about them is that they persist and people keep telling them this idea that there were there were enslaved African people who were bought and sold in the city who lived married had children died here and this idea of people being physically present in the city um, enslaved African people being the sort of human um, part of this history uh, is really poignant and I, I spoke a bit before about the way that this this is a history that has been maritimized that is connected to the history of the seas and the oceans and actually yes that can be a sort of a way of forgetting or a way of displacing but in Liverpool that's also a way of remembering because a lot of these sites of memory that are constructed by discourse, that are constructed by the stories of enslaved people who were bought and sold or, or, or lived there, are dotted around the original line of the River Mersey. So the River Mersey was pushed back um, for later uh, dock construction, but in the 18th century, it came right up to a road um, called Goree. Um, and around Goree, there are a number of stories of slave sales. Um, noted around there. So Gori used to be the site of these grand um, warehouses um, and uh, Gori or rather, so it's Gori in the Scouse, <laughs> but in the French it's Gore and Gore is an island off the coast of uh, Senegal in West Africa where there's also a complex memory of slavery there. There's uh, the Maison des Sclaves, which the House of Slaves, um, a UNESCO heritage site. Um, that, is, that was said to house a number of enslaved people, although historians debate, you know, how, how feasible this actually was. But through naming that connects that island off the coast of West Africa to the waterfront in Liverpool, which until recently was also a UNESCO World Heritage Site. They've been stripped of it now. Um, but this site of Goree, so you have the memory of slavery in the name because this connects to an important African island on the slave route. 
um, but also through the place. And, and the warehouses themselves have since been knocked down, but there were stories told about enslaved people being sold or chained in rings. Uh, and again, this isn't necessarily that this actually happened, but you know, people are connecting iconography in their built environment and making connections to the human story. So you might see a ring on um, by a pillar and think someone could have been chained to that uh, and so on and so forth. And one of the um, one of the architectural historians of Liverpool, Charles Riley, uh, he notes that there was an intricate engraving of an African woman on um, gory buildings as well. And so there's a really interesting kind of gendering of what made Liverpool rich in these places. And so these warehouses were, um, they fell into disrepair and they were knocked down after the war, after the Second World War. And in their place, this this office block was built, this huge office block, um, or in, in the place that was sort of closest to them. Um, and I find it wonderfully ironic that the office block was named Wilberforce House. <laughs> so you get this kind of displacement of a difficult memory of slavery with a more comforting memory or narrative of abolition in that place. Memories of our darkest chapters may be exercised from official memory, but they still persist in public memory. In the case of Liverpool, memories of the slave trade persist in the form of narratives of pride and shame about the city's past. They persist through debates about whether slaves were bought or sold, lived or died in Liverpool. They persist through sites of unofficial memory, where stories about the presence of slaves stretch across time. Motivated in large part by the struggle of Liverpool-born blacks for justice and recognition, city authorities have made efforts to grapple with the history of the slave trade. From the opening of permanent museum displays to the issuing of an official apology, meaningful steps have been taken to start the process of confronting the past. This is an important departure for a country that has, until now, sought solace in the narrative of abolition. But as evidenced by the muddled nature of the apology and the neo-abolitionist message of the International Slavery Museum, this is a process fraught with challenges and difficulties with much more work to be done. I would like to extend my deepest thanks to Jessica Moody for sharing her time and thoughts. I would also like to acknowledge her kindness for sending a number of photos, which I've used on the podcast website, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook pages. Next month, we'll turn to the story of the one million Chinese mainlanders who fled to Taiwan following the communist victory in 1949. We'll hear from historian Dominic Mengshuan Yang about how the memory work of mainlander refugees and their children helped them cope with the trauma of the largest outmigration of Chinese in the modern era. Please review us on your preferred podcast app, subscribe on our website, realmsofmemory.com, and tune in to our next episode on June 12th. I'm your host, Rick Dadarian. Thank you again for taking time to listen to this episode of Realms of Memory.